Okay, good morning, it's good to be back. Missed you last week, but I didn't really miss you. I was, uh, <laughs> being in Israel for two days was incredible. It was yeah, an unbelievable two days. Definitely. And the truth is, it, um, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit this morning when we see the psukim that we're going to investigate together. So let's begin, as we always do, with our overview of the parsha. Parsha's Kisete, Stone Chumash, page 1046. This parsha is rich with mitzvos. Many, 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 many mitzvos. Some new, some repetitive, some a repeat. But uh, rich with mitzvos. Of course, the student of the parsha uh, goes through this parsha trying to understand the juxtaposition or the contrast. What is the theme that drives one section to the next? Um, as you go through what seems to be a random assembly of different mitzvos. The parsha begins with the story of the Eishas Yifas Tawar. When a person is at war and they come across a beautiful woman... And the Torah in this uh, section seems to respond, The Torah seems to respond to man's inclination in the context of war, when a person is vulnerable, tired, a person is um, exposed to the temptations of life. So the Torah, rather than chastise the individual, rather than try to make him feel bad, the Torah tries to accommodate. And by accommodating the desire, the need of the individual, hopes that the person will not actually pursue it. It's very interesting. I once gave a drusha where I spoke about the question, is the Torah part of utopian literature? The genre of literature, utopian literature, trying to describe the perfect world as you wish it to be. Is the Torah trying to describe a perfect world? And it's clear if you study Torah that no. Torah is not trying to describe a perfect world, assuming man is infallible, assuming man, generic man, man and woman, are complete control of themselves. The Torah is describing a real world, a world of temptation, a world of desire, a world of seduction. Um, a physical world, a world in which we live, and uh, in a world of impulse and uh, instinct. And that's what Yifas Tawar, this section is the Torah speaking, It's very, very, I think it's very validating. Because we're real people living in a real world of real temptation. We have real mistakes and real poor judgment, real indiscretions. And rather than say, I can't measure up, I can never ever live in a perfect world, the utopian world that the Torah paints, picture the Torah paints, the Torah speaks to the Yetzirah. I think it's important to know this about our Gedolim, our greatest uh, leaders throughout our history. We're not perfect people. It's the greater evidence that it's not utopian literature. We are the only religion in which we do not look at our great figures as having been perfect. Torah is not afraid from the very beginning of time. Adam Arishon, to point out the failures, the shortcomings. The Ramban criticizes Avram, what he did to Sarah. And this one first criticizes Yitzchak's relationship with Rivka. And this one criticizes and Moshe Rabbeinu. We're not afraid to see the shortcomings of our leaders to recognize that the Torah is not trying to describe a perfect world. The Torah is trying to describe what imperfect people should do to operate in an imperfect world. How to find meaning, how to recover, how to repair, how to live in an imperfect world. And this is really captured in the section of Yifas Torah. A lot more to talk about, but not for now. The next is the Ben Sora Rumora. Something that our rabbis told us never existed. So why does it take up real estate in the Torah? Because it, when we study it, we understand, uh, first of all, we're, we're studying Torah, which is in itself an inherent value. But moreover, we can extract from the Ben Sora Romora lessons about parenting. As Rafersh does, and Tziv does, there's a lot of lessons to extract about the attitude. The mother and father having to be on the same page. If you have disparate messages, if you're not... If it's not Shomea Bekolei, Bekola Viva, Bekoli Moa, if it's separate voices, then the child's going to take advantage of 
walk right between that crack, between the two different opinions. They have to be aligned. And the Torah goes on through the Ben Saramura. Again, you could extrapolate a lot of lessons of, of uh, Jewish education, of Jewish parenting. We have the section of uh, the prohibition of we discussed this last year a little bit in depth, two years ago that one is forbidden from wearing the op- gender, uh, clothing of the opposite gender and it's not only clothing of the opposite gender it's the practices of the opposite gender Chazal learn a man is not allowed to pluck out his uh, white hairs that's why my now have a head full of you see that I am in complete fulfillment of that uh, not violating that prohibition. What? Of not of not violating that prohibition. So uh, well, that's one example. In the time of the Gemara, the Chazal saw looking in the mirror, vanity was something only women cared about. Not necessarily in a negative sense. A woman tries to beautify herself, and men were indifferent, could care less. So this halacha is somewhat subjective. It depends on the time, depends on the place, depends on the practices, and so on. Can a man, this is a question I receive not infrequently, can a man color his hair? So the answer to that halacha is different today than it was maybe 100 years ago or 500 years ago. It depends on what the contemporary practices are, whether it's something which is exclusively only women do or men do also. A man having a piercing, all kinds of uh, questions. I'm not saying it's the proper thing, but is it a violation of this Torah prohibition? It's relative to the time in which you live. The next uh, mitzvah the Torah tells us is Shiluach HaKan, or Shiluach HaKain. We also discussed this in depth last year. What about tattoos? Tattoos for sure are forbidden, because that has nothing to do with um, man, male, or... It's not masculinity or femininity. Tattoo has to do with degrading the body. The body is not ours. We are simply uh, put in charge of guarding the body. And a permanent uh, ink on the body is something which is prohibited. We discussed it as one of the myths that we busted last Shavuos. Was, uh, there's a terrible misnomer that a Jew with a tattoo cannot be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Yes. That's it's not true. grossly inaccurate. No. The truth is, we went through again, I don't want to take the time now. I, I'm happy to sh- send you the source sheets. But the halacha was that an egregious sinner could not be buried in a Jewish cemetery. But today, because we paskin, basically everybody's a Tinoch Shanishba, people don't know better, they're uneducated, we do bury. In the Jewish cemetery, actually, there used to be, and the Shulchan Aruch quotes this, sections designated for the righteous, the less righteous, the really less righteous. And, you know, you determined who got buried next to whom based on the righteousness. So there was a notion of, you know, your permanent resting place was a reflection of the choices you made in your life. But today we are much more lax because, again, we give the benefit of the doubt assuming that people lack the basic benefit. So not having a tattoo is no worse than many of the other violations of Torah. We bury people who don't keep Shabbos because they don't know better, didn't fully keep kosher because they don't know better. Somebody who spoke Lashon Hara, even if they knew better. We bury them all in a Jewish cemetery. There's no specific halacha about a tattoo. A tattoo is a violation of a Torah law. So it follows all the other violations where today we are much more lenient giving the benefit of the doubt. We bury people with tattoos in Jewish cemeteries. Yes. Oh, in London, they do have Shabbat Shabbat sections. They have Shabbat Shabbat sections, yeah. In America, too. And yes. In certain places in America, yeah. Well. Yeah, if you pay the right amount, you could get into the Shabbat Shabbat section, <laughs> even if you, if you know the right people, you pay the right amount. You, did, you, you were Maharher Bachuva a moment before your death. We know that he, he, if he knew he couldn't be buried here, he would have wanted to be a Shabbat Shabbat. So, anyway, but uh, the point is, so that is uh, Beget Isha. 
Then we have Shiloh HaKain, Shiloh HaKan, said in the Mother Bird Away. We discussed that again at length last year. I refer you, you can listen to it on Wai Torah or the Shul's website, brsonline.org. Is it a mitzvah with major machlokas achronim, rashash, chaschinach? Is it a mitzvah to seek a nest or is it only if you come across a nest? Is it a mitzvah only, Chaim Kanievsky has an opinion, is it only if you want the eggs is a mitzvah to send the mother? Or you should send the mother away even if you don't need the eggs? It's a, it's a mitzvah. There's a whole discussion what's the nature of this mitzvah? Is it in order to instill a greater sensitivity? The Gemara says, no, Meshaskinah. So somebody who says, that Hashem gave us this mitzvah because he wants to to uh, take pity on the mother bird, that's what? And he doesn't take pity on the mother the mother chicken? He doesn't take pity on the mother cow? He, what about all of the, you're going to elicit jealousy among creation? So there's a big, again, big discussion among the Rishonim. It doesn't mean that God wants us to have pity on the mother bird. It means God wants us to cultivate the sense of pity in us. In us. We saw later interpretations, was it the Orachayim? I don't remember, this was last year, that really it's a reference to us. That when you send the mother, it's our gullus, it's sensitivity, it's love, it's Hashem, it's relationship with us, a whole discussion. Okay, but we'll never get through this Parsha's overview because there's so many mitzvahs in it. We've got to move. Makya, if you build a home, you have to put up a fence. The mitzvah of wearing tzitzis. If a woman is uh, married, she's suspected of an extramarital affair. If it's true, if it's not true, what happens? A woman who's betrothed, um, the forbidden marriages, um, there are nations who mistreated us, who were inappropriate to us in our sojourn through the desert. And they exhibited such poor character that we are careful, we are not careful, the Torah prohibits us from absorbing those negative character traits within the DNA of the Jewish people. So therefore, An Ammonite and a Moabite are not allowed to enter the Jewish people. This was the famous with, uh, with uh, David Amelech's own lineage. He was suspect. It turns out Moavi, Velo Moavis. It's only a Moavi man, not a Moavi woman. She can enter. It's only the man who can enter. And the Torah here tells us specifically why. They're not allowed to enter. Because Ammon was unkind. Moav tried to recruit somebody to curse you. They exhibited such cruelty exhibited such callousness. These are attributes, we spoke about a few Shabbos ago, that the Jewish people are distinguished by being Rachamanim, Baishanim, Gomel, Chasadim. We are kind, we're merciful, we're good. We have the capacity for shame, for humility. We can't absorb, we won't absorb these negative qualities in our people and those nations who exhibit categorically those qualities, those nations are forbidden from entering the Jewish people. The uh, Torah then tells us about the sanctity of the camp. This is the, those are the psukim we're going to investigate more carefully in a moment, and uh, the sanctity of our of our lives, that the um, interpersonal and intimate relationships that we have. We then have the prohibition You're not allowed to charge interest. Charging interest is among the most complex areas of halacha. The fifth parak of Bamitzia, Ezo Neshach, is among the most difficult. Uh, sections of all of the Talmud, you know, because the Gemara entertains, if you have somebody over for a Shabbos meal and um, they serve chicken and they're going to have you back and serve meat, that might be, that might be ribis, that might be interest. They're paying you back, you add them a chicken, you're ca- so again, there's a big discussion. There's even a halachic discussion, if somebody lent you money, you pay them back, and when you pay them back, you say thank you. Is the thank you that you offer, you write a nice card, is the nice card that you wrote 
and the tova sana, you're going to give a person satisfaction and joy through the gratitude you expressed. Maybe that's interest. I'm not telling you these things are halacha lamaisa. Very complicated. I'll tell you, it's a very complicated area of halacha to determine what's ribas. And uh, we have... Um, in business situations, people lend money, we structure it as a partnership, not as a loan, a heter iska, in order to enable, how do you have banks operating in Israel, lending or with interest, or a bank, you make a deposit, your account, you're accruing interest, it's a violation. Why is there a prohibition of interest? We've said this in the past. What's the matter with interest? Interest is fair. The truth is, when I lend with interest, I'm not really making money. I'm just getting paid back what I deserve. What do I mean? There's a time value to money. If I lend you $100 for six months, whether it's inflation so the $100 is worth more, or whether it's the fact that for those 100 months I was deprived of the ability to use the $100, there's a time value to money. When I studied at Kellogg for a summer, um, Kellogg's Advanced Executive Program, I remember they taught about the company Dell Computers. Dell Computers, when you order a computer from Dell, you pay immediately, but Dell does not pay the, company, the, the companies that produce the parts for the computer for 90 days. One of the ways Dell makes the most money is not the markup on the computer, but everyone who orders a computer, they have that money immediately and they get to hold it for 90 days before they have to pay. That 90 days, you make a lot of money. There's a time value to money. So when I lend you with interest, don't I deserve the value of the time that I'm without that money? So why, and, and is lending with interest unethical? Absolutely not. How do I know lending with interest is not unethical? Because I'm allowed to lend with interest to a non-Jew. If it were unethical, I can't do unethical things to non-Jews. Unethical things are unethical things. So why can I lend with interest to a non-Jew, just not a Jew? The answer is very simple. Lending with interest is absolutely ethical. However, what if your brother comes to you for money? Your son or daughter come to you, they've hit hard times, they can't pay their bills, can I borrow $100? And you say, sure, 10% interest. You're a jerk. What kind of parent are you? What kind of brother are you? What kind of family member are you? Is it fair? Is it just? Is it ethical? Absolutely. Is it nice? No. 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 It's your family member. Who lends their family with it? I'm not talking about your family wants to start a major business, needs to borrow major money, so you structure a heteriska and you give up. I'm talking about their own heart, they need to borrow some money. And you insist on lending with interest? It's not nice. So the Torah wants to cultivate within us a sense that all of the Jewish people is your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. It's not nice. Don't lend them with interest. They need to borrow. You don't lend with interest. Not because it's unethical, not because it's unfair, but it's because it's something you don't do to your family. Your family, you lend because you lend. Then the Torah tells us about vows. The person makes a neder. The, uh, fine. We have the mitzvah. Yes, it's a mitzvah of Gerishin in the correct circumstances. Unlike other religions, we have a mitzvah of, of a get, of ending a marriage. Kidnapping Tsaras, not telling Lashon Hara. We remember what Miriam did. A great question. Rabbi Weil spoke about a child shittas a number of months ago. Isn't the Torah violating exactly what they're warning us to not forget Miriam did when it tells us, don't forget Miriam spoke Lashon Hara? Don't forget Miriam spoke Lashon Hara. Isn't that Lashon Hara about Miriam? Just say, don't speak Lashon Hara. But to say it's one of the permanent remembrances, Zachor, one of the six heroes, don't forget. Don't ever forget. Be cognizant. Remain aware. Vigilant. Miriam spoke Lashonar. Isn't that Lashonar about Miriam? What's going on? For another time. The obligation to pay workers on time. Mind-boggling that yeshivas, for some reason, 
who are strict and careful in the cafeteria, the food is uh, the highest standard of the uh, hashkocha. In the whatever, it's the highest das you're worrying about. And when it comes to paying the rebbeim, all of a sudden this pasuk in the Torah, this mitzvah d'oraisa, this isa d'oraisa, these laven. So there's a halacha that you have to pay. There's even a discussion in halacha. I saw a tshuva once. You have a babysitter. And uh, you come back late at night, you have no cash. Say, the babysitter, can I pay you tomorrow? It's a Torah prohibition. You have to pay the person who worked for you in a timely fashion. What's the halacha if you say, I have no cash, can I give you a check? So you give them a check at 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night when you came home from the wedding. Did you violate the prohibition? Some say yes. Why? What could you do with a check at 11 o'clock at night? Others say, you, maybe this is the difference between America and Israel. You can endorse the check and it functions like cash. Right? In Israel, people exchange endorsed checks like cash. So, what? What do you mean? Okay, okay. So, but the tshuva discusses, is that a violation of the prohibition? You're paying the war 11 o'clock at night with a check. You have the same question, by the way, when it comes to Purim. Matanus Lavyonim, it's a Sunday Purim, the banks are closed. If you give a check, do you fulfill the mitzvah Matanus Lavyonim? Is a check like cash, or is a check not like cash? But this halacha, there's a mitzvah saseh and a lav. You have to pay them on time and there's a prohibition you're not allowed to delay payment of them. You have to pay on time, you have to pay in a timely fashion. First of all, that's not a, that's only when it's a mechemes rishus, a mechemes mitzvah, everyone has to go. So a voluntary war, there are the exemptions. But an obligatory war, everybody, even chasem mitachas chupaso, everybody has to go. Okay, never forget the Yasam Valmana, never forget the widow and the orphan. It's repeated over and over again. Lashes, the mitzvah of Yibum. The Ramban says Yibum is the source of Gilgul. Yibum is the source of reincarnation. Why is it that if a man dies with no children, that the surviving wife has to marry a brother? Because the product of the relationship between the wife and the brother will be the reincarnation of the husband who died. That's what the Ramban says. The mitzvah of Yibam is the Torah source for reincarnation. That the soul of the deceased brother will come back to this world through the child that will be born from the wife and the brother, says the Ramban. Yibam is the source of Gilgal Neshamos. Then we have the, uh, now I don't embarrass somebody, honest weights and measures. Interesting. If you look at honest weights and measures, what does it call it? Everybody likes to talk about homosexuality is an abomination from the Torah perspective. And it's a complicated discussion, not for now. Everyone likes to quote that one. You know what else is an abomination? Cheating on your taxes. Cheating on your business. Taking something as a business expense when you're having lunch with your buddy. You know what else is an abomination? Lying in business. Dishonest weights and measures. It's right here, state in the Pasuk. Page 1064. Okay, that is... An overview of the parsha. Like I said, so many mitzvahs. Each one of them is so fascinating. We could talk about for hours and hours. What I want to study is together in more in depth. Page Perak of Gimel Pasuk Yud, chapter twenty-three, verse ten, which appears in the Ston Chumash on page one thousand and fifty-four. One thousand fifty-four. One zero five four. Perak of Gimel Pasuk Yud, chapter twenty-three, verse ten. After the Torah warns us that you're not allowed to marry certain uh, nations because again, as we said, we don't want to integrate their callous and cruel character traits into our genetic DNA. Torah then tells us what happens when you go to war. Pasuk This is a new section 
indicated by the Samech. Psuchos and Stumos, this is a new section. We discussed last Shabbos. We had in Parsha Shoftim, War ethics. When you go out, don't be afraid, don't be frightened. And here we have a continuation of some of the war ethics. A Jewish army is constituted differently than every other army. When we go out to war, we're not to be fearful. And where do we draw the strength not to be afraid? From the faith that we have. Right, this part Hashem goes with us and He fights for us against our enemy. Last Shabbos we quoted the the uh, head of the Givati Brigade, Ofer, I forgot his last name, who wrote the letter to his soldiers who were about to go into Gaza in the middle of July, and he quoted the pasuk from Parsha Shoftim, and then he told the story afterwards when the sun was rising, about to reveal their position and risk their lives, and a fog descended upon them like the Anani Akavod and only lifted afterwards and he saw it in that story. Again, this was not a Baba Misa that made its rounds on the email. This was the, the head of the Givati Brigade himself testified that a fog very um, very uh, mysteriously descended upon his troops and lifted as soon as they were in a safe position. And he saw it as the Anani Akavod, he saw it as a fulfillment of the Pasuk in last week's Parsha. When we put our faith in Hashem, we have nothing to fear because Hashem is fighting, Hashem goes out. And as I described last Shabbos, when I had the chance to meet the incredible soldiers of the IDF last week and to, to visit the hospital, the injured soldiers, and to meet the chief rabbi of the army and so on, you saw the fearlessness in them. Whether it was the soldier who described he was Chiloni, but he walked in with his, his uh, two things he went into Gaza with. He refused to go in without these two things. His emergency aid kit and his Sefer Tehillim. He wouldn't go in without his Tehillim, the Chiloni. Because Why? put his faith in Hashem you put your faith in Hashem so here our parsha continues the same theme of the Jewish army the Jewish war ethic here we're talking not about the war ethic but we're talking about the what a Jewish army base looks like what the Jewish army base looks like let's read the section then we'll go back and analyze when the campment goes out to war on your enemy to guard yourself from anything bad. What does that mean, guard yourself from anything bad? Artillery, mortars, rockets? What is the davara here? We'll see. If you have someone, a soldier in your camp, who is impure because he had an emission at night, he has to leave the camp. He has to go out. He cannot enter the camp. And when he goes out, Towards the evening, he goes in the mikvah. And when the sun sets, he can re-enter the camp. And you shall have a place outside of the camp where the person can go out, and he'll go outside. In addition to your uh, weapons, you should have a shovel. Yatayit is a it's, it's like we would call a, um, a stake. A stake. But it means in this context look, to function like a spade, like a shovel. Can you imagine? Can you imagine any other army in the world saying, among the army protocols is this critical protocol. When you relieve yourself outside the camp, you dig a hole with the shovel and don't forget to cover it up. Why is it so important? to cover up after one relieves themselves because Hashem Himself is in the camp. 
That's what we talked about last week. It's not that you're going to war and Hashem's, you know, got your back behind. Hashem's one of the soldiers. He's in the camp. So therefore, you have to raise the standard. You have to elevate the sanctity of the camp because God's there. One second. He's with you to save you. And to place your enemy before you. Your camp must be holy. And you shall not see any inappropriateness among you, anything shameful. Turn away from behind you. Okay, that is the section. A couple interesting things. This expression, this phrase, your encampment shall be holy. This is the motto, the slogan of Nacha Haredi. 1999, they began units in the Israeli army for those who identify as Haredim. One of the major, this is a big discussion, also not for now, we gave a series of shirim two years about it, two years ago about it, but one of the major hesitations of the Haredi segment of society from entering the army, one of the hesitations, was that they felt the army environment is not conducive to a religious person. Many people go into the army and in fact they lose their religion. They compromise in their religion. There's an atmosphere of openness and, uh, and they're afraid. How could we send our children to be soldiers? What if they're going to lose their scrupulousness in Shmir Samitzvahs? So the response was to create the Nacha Haredi. They created special units for Haredim, which I have to tell you, I think the Nacha Haredi, from what I understand, has fewer Haredim and more Chardalim, meaning has more religious, you know, Dati Le'umi, has more what they call Chardal, Haredi Dati Le'umi, which are, you know, right-wing nationalistic people. But anyway, there they have a different standard. In the Kashros, there's no women, the, the camp is different. So the slogan of Nachal Haredi, which was growing and growing and growing until the controversy arose, the Tal law reversing it, all the controversy arose, kind of put a halt. If they would have left well enough alone, many of the Haredim were sneaking in. The Nachal Haredi was growing. But anyway, the slogan, the motto of Nachal Haredi is, V'haya Machanecha Kadosh. The Pasuk from our Parsha. We also learn a number of halachas. We have a lot of halachas. One is not, those who did the daf may recall these halachas in the earlier in Seder Moed. You're not allowed to daven if you're near excrement or urine. The halacha is one is not allowed to daven within Dalat Amos or within where you smell the odor. There are all kinds of halacha connected to davening. Not only davening, learning Torah. V'ayamachanecha kadosh. This comes up halacha lamaisa if you have children in diapers. You want to bench. The child in diapers is running around the room. You want to make a bracha, it's time to daven. There's a big discussion. Post can actually talk about a newborn baby who's only nursing from the mother. Their elimination is not included in this prohibition. And with that type of diaper, you are allowed to bench, as opposed to other diapers. Again, not for now to discuss. But uh, this notion of ayamachanecha kadosh applies actually, you know, if the bathroom door is open, can you make a bracha if you're outside the bathroom door? What's the halacha? Our modern day toilets, the same by the way, it's a fascinating discussion, some articles written. Modern day with indoor plumbing, Vayamachanecha Kadosh takes on a whole new. Because when you flush a toilet, if it's a clean bathroom, the bathroom can, a, a bathroom is not necessarily a undignified place. 
So does that change the halacha? Washing in the bathroom, if a person ever made a bracha, if the door to the stall was closed, you're at the sink, all kinds of fascinating discussions, but the basis for those discussions in halacha is this pasuk, kadosh. Okay, let's go back and look at the pasuk and analyze the pasuk themselves. We'll start with Rashi, as we always do. When an encampment goes out on your enemies, guard yourself from a davara. What's this davara? Writes Rashi, Shasatan Mekatrig Bishas Hasakana. He quotes a Yerushalmi in Shabbos that the Satan, how do we describe the Satan? Satan. Again, in Judaism, we don't mean the Satan is some, you know, devil in a pitchfork and some, you know, being who is independent of the Almighty. To us, the Satan is, you know, the Midas Haddin of Hashem, so to say. Satan is the we arouse the midas hadin of Hashem. There's sometimes there are, there's behavior that arouses mercy from God, and there's behavior that arouses judgment from God. So writes Rashi, when we are b'shasa sakana, when a person is in a moment of danger, that arouses God's judgment, because God says, should I intercede in order to save them? Bring me their file. Let me see how they're doing. So b'shasa sakana. God says, let me evaluate. Are they worthy of my, of my helping them? So what does that mean, says Rashi? If a person's in a moment of danger, it's a good time to be on your best behavior. It is the time to be. Be careful. means Be careful how you conduct yourself. Not a mortar or a missile or anti-tank or gunfire. Mikol Davara means your behavior, how you talk, what you listen to, what you look at, what you do. You need to be careful because when you are Bashasa Sakana, then the uh, God's sense of judgment is aroused because He has to evaluate whether to save you. Sifsei Chachamim says, How do you know that's what it's talking about? Right? Sifsei Chachamim, Dim Lokein Harei, Babayas Gamkein Sarachli Shamar Mikol Davara. Maybe at home also. You should always be Shomer Mikol Davara. Why is the Pasuk emphasizing in a time of war more than any other time? In a time of peace when I'm sitting in my house, I also have to be careful how I behave. Why is the Pasuk, pasuk emphasizing it? So says, because in a time of war, you're in danger, in acute danger. When you're in danger, that's when you especially have to be on your best behavior because God is looking at you even under a closer magnifying glass. Continues Rashi, Mikra Laila, Diber Akasav Bahova. Pasuk talks about in the in the uh, in the present. The person has to leave the camp, it's a positive commandment. So you have a positive commandment for the person who's impure to leave the camp and a negative commandment he may not remain. When it gets close to nightfall he goes to the mikvah. We know that in order to attain purity you need two things. You need to go to the mikvah and you need the day to end. The end of the day. You have to have a place for him outside the camp. Outside of the holiness of being protected under the, under the Anan. You should have a shovel in addition to your. Azaynecha is like Zion. Zion is your, your weapons. Okay. That's Rashi. Look at the Balaturim. 
Yaakov ben Osher. Vinishmarta, be careful from all those bad things. What are the bad things that you have to be careful of? You're in a context of war. You might kill indiscriminately. You might devalue life. You have to be especially careful. We spoke about this last week as well. The Sfasema says, why do we have juxtaposed in last week's Pasha Shoftim, Kiseitze la Melchama and Egla Arufa? If you find a corpse lying in the street, you have to treat with great care, concern, sensitivity, a whole ceremony to figure out who the killer is. Why those juxtaposed at the Sfasemes? War breeds the devaluation of life. You're killing, you're in war, people are dying. You might think life is... Uh, we have to retain the sense of the inestimable value of every life. Egla Rufa. says the Venishmar to be called be very, very careful. I spoke about in Shabbos Colonel Bensi Gruber, who teaches war ethics. How the Jewish army is held to a higher standard by the war and holds ourselves to a higher standard, making sure not to kill innocents or civilians. Because Bigamatria Minshvichas Damim. Also Bigamatria, Mikilas Hashem. Be careful not to curse Hashem. It's very easy in the context of war, your midos go out the window. You're cursing like a drunken Chinese sailor. You're cursing like a madman. Kill us Hashem. What else happens in a time of war? We know many stories of men in armies who, when fighting in other countries, leave behind children in those other countries. Because in a time of war, again, you're vulnerable. You, you, you feel your mortality. You think, what's it all about anyway? Who really cares? So people are promiscuous. They're not careful. So again, bigamatria, don't look at uh, women. Mikol davara, lastly, zen nivopeh. Mikol davara, zen nivopeh, cursing. Don't use the koach or the power of speech, for nivopeh, to curse, to be insensitive and uncareful with the words that we use. So the Baal takes this word, vinishmarta, and he finds in numerical value all these behaviors. Again, what's the davara? When you're in the Jewish army, what you're more afraid of is not the enemy. What are you most afraid of? Yourself. Your merits, your worthiness, how you behave. The enemy? Don't worry. If you behave properly, God will go out and fight for you. God will take care of the enemy. What you have to really worry about is are your merits, your worthiness. And therefore, the valuing of life. Your relationship with God. Making sure that you're striving, you're aspiring for holiness. And just because you're in the army does not give you carte blanche to start cursing and to start this and to start that. One can be a holy soldier. One can find holiness and sanctity even while fighting in the army. Says the Ramban, he quotes Rashi that when you're in a time of danger, sakana, you're more vulnerable. Writes the Ramban, Says Ramban, very important Ramban, a sociological description of what happens in times of war, what happens when you're in the army. Why, why people are afraid, religious people, to send their children to the army. What happens in the army? The army is a place that breeds cruelty, so to say. How can you pull the trigger of a gun and take another life? You have to arouse within yourself anger, violence, aggression. 
These are character traits. When you become aggressive, when you become violent, when you are in a war that you're willing to kill someone else, to kill, then you're also, says the Ramban, in that context, in that environment, you're also going to curse, and you're also going to sleep around, and you're also going to eat non-kosher. Why is it that a half, a half, I don't know what the statistics are, but why is it that you enter the Israeli army, all of a sudden you start smoking? You don't know that it's bad for your lungs? What's the answer? Because you might die that day. So smoking matters. You care about the data about lung cancer 50 years from now when you're in the army and you're going out to battle and you might get shot in the head that day. You're living in a place where your mortality, where confronting mortality is, is, is thrown in your face. So when you're in an army, you're, it dehumanizes you. You wear dog tags, you're a number. You're aggressive, you're killing others. So the Jewish army though is different. You are a name and you're fighting for a purpose and you're fighting for a people and you're fighting for a value system and you're fighting for a way of life. So kadosh. Our army bases, the Torah describes, cannot be places of indiscriminate cursing and eating and promiscuity and you know we're just animals because we're at war and we're fighting so dehumanizes us. Our army bases are places of great humanity, of sanctiness, of, sanct- of sanctity, of striving for holiness, of being careful how you speak and what you look at and how you eat and how you conduct yourself. So the Ramban is contrasting. What it's saying is, specifically on an army base, you're vulnerable to taking off your human hat and acting like an animal. Smoking, no, on an army base, you too can be a human, you too can strive for sanctity, writes the Rampan. Yes? So, what, what came to me is, you know, I'm thinking, you know, God forbid, you know, you're in a, a horrible situation like that, you have to give over your life. Just, right. Just like you're giving over your life to the army, more importantly, you're giving over your life that kind of horrible. Oh. And you live not just for a mom as that, but for a mom as that. Right. And that's the only thing I can do if I am in the army. Good. In other words, to put differently, when you're in the army, if you're willing to die for the cause, live for the cause. If you're willing to die for Hashem, for the people, for the values, so live those values. And and that's our army. There's, Look, I'm sure there's a lot of these challenges in the Israeli army, but there's also a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of beauty, a lot of striving. Hezder units and so on, it's, it's incredible. And uh, the chief rabbi of the army we met with, Rav Rafi Peretz, that's his slogan. Rabbanut Shal Kulam in the Israeli army. He's trying to create an environment of sanctiness, of trying to elevate, putting military chaplains on army base, embedding them in every unit that go out to war to bring a Jewish spirit, a Torah spirit to the army. We're not just an army like any other nation, a secular entity trying to defend our people. We are a spiritual entity who are trying to fight for a value system and a way of life. Rabbanut Shal Kulam, raising the Shemitah standards, the Kashra standards, and all of the other standards. The Ramban continues... It doesn't mean midavara. You know, again, they're largely. No, we don't assign. Look, the Torah is replete with telling us how to behave. Because if if so, if rain doesn't fall, if somebody dies young, that's God's job. We know there are people who die al kiddush Hashem. There are people who die tzaddik varalo. God's job is to decide. Our job is to be inspired and motivated by the message. Our job is not to say, well, if a soldier died, it must be because he wasn't Shomer Midavara. 
Must be that soldier spoke Nevope. Must be that soldier ate. Uh, no. That's not our job. That's God's job. We know that many of these soldiers, in fact, <laughs> I would argue that as we learn the stories of many of these soldiers who were just killed, Hashem Yikom Damam, they were incredible, extraordinary people. You learned about the most remarkable selfless giving. The three boys who were kidnapped were not ordinary boys. They were not the bottom of the barrel. They were the, the top, the cream of the crop. So God forbid that we should say they were not v'nishmartim mikol davara. That's not the lesson to take. This v'nishmartim mikol davara should motivate us. In, in hindsight, retroactively, that's God's job. That's not our job. Continues the Ramban. In addition to the to the mitzvahs that you have to keep always, it's a special mitzvah to say God's in the camp. Don't kick him out because of your behavior. God is among you. If you want the merit of fighting with God among you, then don't behave in a way that is going to purge God, it's going to eliminate God so to say from your midst okay now I want to read to you an incredible Kleyakar with you so the Kleyakar says what's the fulfillment of Kadosh? your camp should be holy the Pasuk said what, what does that mean it means don't curse and no promiscuity and no uh, this and no that but what was the example the Torah itself gave if you have to relieve yourself make sure that not only do you have your rifle and not only do you have your machine gun, and not only do you have your tank, but make sure you have a shovel. You have to dig a hole, eliminate it properly, and cover it up. And cover it up. And cover it up. What, what does that example describe, basically? It means, it means dignity. What does it mean to cover it up? It means be dignified. Yes, you're confronting mortality. Yes, you may die at any moment, so who really cares whether you're excrement is covered or not. Does that really matter? The answer is yes. Carry yourself with dignity. That's what it means to be a Tzalem Elokim, is to live with a sense of dignity. But the Kliyakar quotes a great Gemara Subas. Gemara Subas learns this Pasuk, um, darshans this Pasuk a little bit differently. al You should have a, a Yased we said is a, uh, a spade, a shovel, Al Azainacha, Zayin, Klizayin are your weapons. But you could read it differently. Dorosh Bar Kapara, my Al Ella Oznecha. That word Azainacha, it doesn't say Klizayin, it says Azainacha. What does that sound like? Ozen your ears. What does it mean that you should put the shovel on your ears? Shem Yishma Adam Davar Sheena Hagun, Yaniach Etz Bao Baaznav. We have two spades that we walk around with all the time. They're called fingers. We have more than two. But your two fingers can fit right in your ears. The Gemara Ksuba says, Why did God make your ears in such a way and your fingers that your finger could fit right into your ear? Because if you hear somebody speaking improperly, someone's trying to tell you Lashon Hara, something negative about somebody else, if somebody's degrading someone else, dismissing someone else, marginalizing somebody else. Stick your fingers in your ears. We have a similar Gemara. Why is it that the ear, the cartilage is hard, but the bottom of the ear, the ear lobe is soft? Why is that? Why did Hashem make us that way? 
so that you could take the soft uh, lobe of your ear and put it in your ear. That's why God constructed your ear in such a way. It's not a chassid shavur, it's a gemara. Gemara said, this was God's wisdom when he created the, when he created the anatomy of the ear. So the bottom of your ear, your earlobe is soft, it's flimsy. So you remember the end of every machlokas is to be is, is soft, it's flimsy, is it doesn't last. So you remember that if you're hearing a machlokas, I don't want to be stick your fingers in your ears, stick your earlobes in your ear, I don't want to hear it. I don't most people oh yeah, some good juicy stuff. Even if you don't participate, you love to hear it. You love to hear it. So, no, we stick your finger in your ear, you stick your earlobe in your ear. That's the, what the Gemara darshans from it. Says the Kliakar, with a very cute play on words. That's a nice word. Right? That's a very cute word. Doesn't mean shovel and doesn't mean have a shovel in addition to your weapons. It means have a, a stick that fits right into your What does that have to do with your encampment, war? It's a cute word, but what does it have to do with the pshat and the pasuk? So answers the Kliakar. V'akar of be'inai, shira lidrosh pasuk zeh, ha'mashanemar ki seitzei machane aloi vecha, v'nishmarta mikol davara. V'dor shirazal, dibora, what is the Dibura? What is the Davara? The Pasuk 7 is Shmartami called Davar Ra. And we learned that meant, Rashi said it meant, you're in a vulnerable moment, be on your best behavior. The Ramban said can't, that, that uh, an army base is a place that people are not scrupulous, don't forget to be scrupulous. The Balaturim said, Begamatra means all these things. Comes along with the Kliyakar and he says, Nevedish Shmartami called Davar Ra. What does Davar mean? Like Dibur. What specifically do you have to be careful about? How you speak, the language, what's being said. What's being said. In an army base, you have different units, different groups, different factions. You could get into machlokas on the base itself, and you'll be harsher to each other than the enemy will be towards you. So be very careful in that environment. It's a place where in between missions you're sitting around, you're schmoozing, you're sharing Lashnara. You're shooting the breeze, you share a lot of Lashnara. It's a place to be very careful. That's why Bar Kapara, who gave this cute word, stick your fingers in your ear, it specifically is relevant here. On an army base. Be careful from every speech that's inappropriate. Machlokas, Lashanhara, and the like. The Kliyaka goes on and on and describes this and describes this idea. Okay, we're going to cut a little short today. We're going to stop here. Rabbi Moskowitz is back and better than ever. And his class will begin.